Hey everybody, welcome to Go Bold. So the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter is having widespread success in fighter acquisition competitions around the world. But did you ever wonder what makes it special? And do you wonder what it takes to transition from a legacy fourth generation jet to the F-35? Well, I do. And I know it's a topic that many try to wrap their minds around as F-35s begin to populate with allied air forces. My guest today is retired U.S. Air Force Colonel John Press Wheeler, who we first featured in episode 21. Press was one of the initial cadre of pilots selected to fly the F-35 in the United States Air Force, and he was the wing commander of the 33rd Fighter Wing, which was the first to train pilots for the F-35. So needless to say, he's a highly regarded subject matter expert. We've timed the release of this episode to occur in between the Tailhook Association Hook 22 Symposium and the upcoming Air Force Association 2022 Air, Space, and Cyber Conference. Our discussion will describe some of the differences between 4th and 5th gen aircraft, and we'll talk about the unique training challenges that come with 5th generation fighters. You'll hear about the imperative of upgrading training systems, and why decision makers must understand the incredible value of blended training environments which incorporate live, virtual, and constructive elements so warfighters get the most realistic training possible to effectively employ the incredible capabilities of next-generation aircraft. It's an important topic, so we hope you find this episode informative. Let's get at it. Hey everybody, welcome to Go Bold. My name is Jody Atariwala and I'm your host. And today we are rejoined by retired U.S. Air Force Colonel John Press Wheeler. Press, thanks so much for joining me again. It's great to have you back on the show. Yeah, it's great to be back. The uh, had a lot of fun on the first one, so I'm sure we'll have fun here today as well. Yeah, I'm totally looking forward to it, Press, because in our previous conversation, we talked about you flying the F-16 and your leadership style. Um, you know, you were wing commander in the U.S. Air Force. And so you have a lot of street cred. And you were also in the initial cadre of F-35 pilots selected for the U.S. Air Force. So I'm really excited for this conversation because we didn't talk a lot about the F-35, but I would love to kind of get into that. I'd love to hear your experiences of going from the F-16 over to the F-35 and how it's different for an aviator to not only fly the aircraft, but to employ it as a weapon system. You bet. That sounds great. Um, I think the last time we talked, we kind of got to the point of of, uh, of my career where the transition really happened, where I got to actually fly it. Uh, and you didn't miss much because that transition happened really late in my career. It was actually when I was went back as the wing commander was the first time I actually got to strap on the jet, as they say, and uh, take it for a ride. So um, I didn't get a lot of time on the stick, but I did. Uh, I was in the program for a good amount of time prior to that. So happy to pick up there and we'll take off. Yeah, no, that sounds great. Um, so for those listeners that are out there, the F-16 is arguably a fourth generation aircraft and the F-35 is, is a fifth gen. Um, how would you describe it? You know, you, you went from the F-16 
you know, a little bit smaller than the F-35, but not much. And, and now going into the F-35, um, for those that are unfamiliar with tactical aircraft, you know, fighter mm -hmm. aircraft, how would you describe the, the kernel differences? You bet. So it really comes down to what is the leap between fourth gen and, and fifth gen right. uh, when it comes to the platform itself. Uh, so there are several things, as you can imagine, the technology for an F-35 is technology that came later than what was originally put in the F-16. However, you do have to realize the F-16 changed a lot and continues to change throughout its history. And it has gotten a lot more capable as it's gone and taken advantage of its unique features. But the things that make fifth gen different from fourth gen are the things that you cannot go back and redesign into a fourth gen aircraft. Uh, and the primary one for that is stealth. You have to be from inception designing the aircraft to have stealth capability. And so that's a huge difference, not just in capability, but then how do we choose to employ that aircraft? If it has stealth, you're going to do it one way. If it does not, it's going to be a, a different scenario there. So that's one. And the other one is uh, the unique engine that drives the mission computers for fifth gen, uh, which allow it to fuse all the different sensors into a single display. And that's something you could potentially get to eventually with the fourth gen fighter if you put enough money into upgrading it. But the F-35 was built with that from inception of this idea of sensor fusion. And so those have very big training implications uh, and, and they're quite, uh, quite different to how you would employ each of the aircraft. Interesting. So um, let's take a pilot like yourself that is qualified on an F-16 or another fighter. Mm -hmm. um, how long does it take to transition over to an F-35? And then what is the difference from uh, you know, a pilot that's just coming out of an IFF course, yeah. Introduction to Fighter Fundamentals? It's a great question. So when I was the wing commander at Eglin, uh, which was from 2019 to 2021, uh, we got to experience both of those. So when the F-35 first came on board, all the classes were transition pilots or TX course, where they had a pilot who had already been a fighter pilot in another air platform. Uh, so whether that be F-15E, F-16, F-15C, or A-10, or really the, the big four in the U.S. Air Force, uh, they would then cross-train into the F-35. So they already have some fundamental skill set, but it's a fundamental skill set that's built in a fourth-gen mentality. And so there's not as much awareness on how do you employ with stealth? How do you employ with sensor fusion? And what does that bring different to the fight from where you came? Mm -hmm. uh, we then started training brand new students that had just finished pilot training so at Eglin, at least, the first class to go through was during uh, my time there. That started in 2019 and finished in 2020. And so we graduated our first class of six brand new students. And they did not have those same experiences to fall back on from fourth gen. But they also did not have those habits and those preconceived notions that come with some of the baggage of being a, a, a previous fourth gen pilot. Uh, because what happens is when you get into an F-35, a lot of the sensors are very similar to many of the sensors you utilized in your previous aircraft. So for me, for example, 
as an F-16 previous background, I had a targeting pod. I had a radar. I had radar warning receiver. I had link 16. So in the F-35, I've got a targeting pod. It's a, it's an EOTS. It's a little bit different because it's integral to the aircraft, but it does the same general functions. Mm-hmm. I've got a radar. I've got a link 16. And so even down to the hands-on throttle and stick or the HOTAS is fairly similar between an F-35 and an F-16. So in some ways you kind of feel very at home, but you're being told, Hey, we're going to employ this thing a little bit differently. And so it's almost a harder training problem depending on how adaptive. So if you're like me coming into it as a wing commander, I've already been flying for over 20 years. It's a little bit more difficult to break the mold in the combat patterns and especially because everything kind of feels similar, but then we're employing in a very different way. And so it's almost a harder transition. When we get the new pilot right from IFF, we're going directly into this different capability. And that sensor fusion is a really big part of that. And now we're trying to train into the biggest difference between the fifth and the fourth gen is that you have to go through a cognitive process to take all your different displays in the fourth gen, you've got to make sense of them in your mind and you've got to build your essay for what to do next or what is the error picture? What is the ground picture? What does the multi-domain picture actually look like? It's constant processing in your mind. And so in the fourth gen, we do a lot of things that included visual tactics because that processing takes a lot of brain power and a lot of your attention And so the wingman or the brand new pilot will really be dedicated a lot of their time towards just keeping awareness on, are there any threats that are getting close enough to be a factor or, um, you know, are we going to hit anything? Because the flight lead is really trying to make flow decisions while trying to piece together all this different information. So the leap happens when you get into fifth gen and the machine is able to do the cognitive processing of combining all those sensors into a common picture. And now it frees up the pilot to be able to make other advanced decisions because that picture is understood more quickly and at a higher level of fidelity. And so now that manifests itself, for an example, in the tactics of as a wingman, instead of being in close, ready to like uh, tell the flight lead, you've got somebody rolling on your six or whatever the case may be, you can now go out and get further away and be ready to employ as another element. And you can spread out your combat presence throughout the four ship so you can spread your sensors out and get more coverage. And then uh, you're ready to process the information as a team because all of you are seeing a more complete common picture and you're able to fill in the gaps for each other. And then you add in the stealth part of that, which is you need to be able to manage your stealth so that you're, you're giving yourself the least look to the adversary that you can uh, from a, the radar spectrum side of things. And so those two things together, being able to separate, have the common picture shown on one display process things more quickly and have better situational awareness and the flow being different because you're now having to worry about this thing called 
managing your your stealth signature, those things together make it a very different tactical problem and one that you can more effectively, I think, train from the beginning than you can to kind of break the mold of the things from fourth gen that didn't have those two advantages. That's really interesting because um, obviously for, for practical reasons, you would have experienced pilots come into the platform, but now it's very common for a pilot to be on the F-35 as their first fighter and probably will be their only fighter throughout their career. That is more the norm now than, right. uh, than was the reverse. So I'd say about three years ago was that tipping point where we were training more new pilots than we were retraining of, of other platform pilots. Mm-hmm. And now at this point, we're really ramping up the new pilot from the get-go, having that fifth-gen mentality, which is a good thing. Yeah, for sure. And I suspect that uh, folks from the F-22 community would also lend their insight into some of the ways to employ a fifth-gen platform. Absolutely. That was a huge advantage for the F-35 community to learn from those experience of the of the fighter stealth as opposed to the bomber stealth, which is a little bit different way of doing business, but that much, much more dynamic fight from an air perspective, uh, those lessons from the F-22 were really important to try to introduce the proper tactics for the F-35. There just weren't as many pilots that had F-22 experience as the F-35 program stood up, just based on it being a smaller community with a, a lower number of jets. But there were definitely good integration opportunities where the the two fifth gen platforms have, have uh, mostly the F thirty five learning from F twenty two experiences has been very useful. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so I've I've got to ask you a couple of things just about flying the jet because one of the differences that I know that exists in the F thirty five is it does not have a heads up display. So. From a person who is coming from a legacy aircraft into an F-35, how do you wrap your head around that? And do you like it that way? Because there's Jehemics, right? So Jehemics, you can look around and, and you can see targeting information and what have you. But um, but you can always go back to, to looking straight ahead and having a HUD, whereas an F-35, there is no HUD. That's true. There is no physical HUD. Uh, and Opinions vary widely as to whether or not that is something generally liked or disliked. Okay. I'd venture to say if you grew up with a HUD, then you missed it because you don't have it anymore. If you got into the F-35 and that was your first fighter, it's what you know. So it's not a big deal. Right. One clarification, though, there is a HUD in the F-35. It's virtual. So when you turn your head, as you described, and you're used to looking through a HUD when you come back center, you you still are, or at least you feel like you are, because of the way the data is presented, where when your head comes off axis, you get a different display. And when you come back to center, it's almost like you're looking through a HUD. It's just no HUD happens to be there. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. And then the other aspect about it is what people say about being able to look through your aircraft. And um, so for those that are not familiar with what I'm describing, um, you were in the jet. Tell us what that's all about, Brett. Yeah. So the, the looking through the aircraft is a pretty neat feature that almost anybody I'd give a capabilities brief about the F-35 would really be drawn to that feature of, oh, you can look through the aircraft. The practicality of how often you look through your aircraft is 
it's not something that you're going to do a whole lot of. Sure. Uh, so the, the basics behind it are you're using your IR or infrared sensors to build a picture and you're projecting that picture onto your helmet. So wherever you look, your, your cameras and your, your sensors that are out there integrated into the, the aircraft, skin, wings, nose, et cetera, uh, it doesn't matter where your head is looking. So you're basically getting a, a, an IR picture no matter where you look. And so uh, why not map that if you have to look straight down? And that can be pretty useful if you're overflying a target or, um, or you're banked up uh, or you're trying to look over at the target and, and it's just under your feet or, or, or whatnot. You could at least get some general awareness of where that target sits in relation to, let's say, a city or, or, or the, the outline of a small town. Uh, you can gain some of that awareness without having to roll back into and point your canopy towards it, which is what you would have to do in a fourth gen fighter. So that can be somewhat useful, but it's fairly limited utility with the ranges you're employing your sensors. Most of the time that's out at a distance where looking through the bottom of your jet is, is not something practically that you would do on a day-to-day -day basis. And it can also be a bit disorienting uh, with night flying and those sorts of things. A lot of the, the canopy itself gives you reference to help keep your mind oriented as to what is up, what is down. Uh, so very cool feature. Uh, practically speaking, not something that's we're out there looking through our jet at all times every day. It's not the way it works. Well, that's interesting because um, I suspect one of the other benefits to having that, regardless of the practicality, is the fact that... Um, you could use like on an F-16, you could have your targeting pod and you could slew that to wherever you want to look. Whereas now there is no targeting pod on it. Like there is no pod on the F-35. Right, right. And so using the integrated sensors on the aircraft, now you're able to just turn your head and be able to look through what I suspect would be similar to slewing a, a sensor pod from a legacy jet. Correct. And that's one of the differences that you really have to get used to. If you've come from an F-16, for example, where you've got a pod that's out on what they call the chin. So slightly offset from where the intake sits on the F-16. And then you would make your circling directions correspond to giving a, a good angle for the pod to look. So now with the F-35, it is directly under the center of the nose and it doesn't hang down quite as far it's more integrated into the jet itself and so that actually poses some challenges to where is the target in relation to you uh fortunately you also have other sensors that that are helping to build the infrared picture in addition to that eots or the electro optical targeting system which is the thing that since sits there uh, in the center of the jet so between those two you can build a pretty good picture but there are challenges that don't exist on the fourth gen. But then there are also opportunities where you can imagine you can look behind yourself a lot more easily because your pod doesn't have to try to turn around and look through a wing tank, for example, or something hanging off the side that does what they call masking. And now you can't see the target because a bomb or a wing tank or a missile is in the way. 
And right. with the sleek design externally, you don't have those same challenges. So it's it's all very different and, and you have to almost reorient yourself to what is my line of sight from the sensor I'm trying to use to the target and how does that affect my tactics? Because it will. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I've seen some pictures of your first flight in an F-35 and I'd love for you to just give me a little bit of a sense of what that was like, because to get into the jet and fly it, it's not like you just hop in and start her up. You had to go through some training, right? And you had to go through a simulator, et cetera, et cetera. You bet. So um, generally the path taken into the F-35 cockpit is not the path I took. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. um, Because I had the early experiences as part of the initial cadre, we were doing a lot of simulators, so I, I had gotten some hands-on time with emergency procedures, the things that you can do in a sim. Now, we did those things in spades because that's all we had. You know, we right. could go fly the F-16 while we were waiting for the jets to come along. So that was in my early experiences we talked about in the last podcast. That was about the 2010 to 12 time frame. Right. And so the first time I actually got to lift the gear handle on this thing after taking off, was uh, almost 10 years later, seven years uh, from the time I left Eglin to go back to the F-16. And so you can imagine emotionally, that was pretty thrilling just to take that ride and go on the full journey because everybody told me, or I told them actually, I said, I will not fly the F-35, I'm too old now. They're never gonna bring me back. (laughs) And they did. So there was an emotional component to that. It was it was thrilling, uh, but the lead up to it was much the same. You really on lead up to any fighter or any aircraft for that matter, you're going to do a lot of ground school. You're going to learn a lot of systems in the F-35. You're going to learn a lot of systems, and then you're going to uh, do a lot of procedures to you know expect the worst case, and all of that has to be done before you get in the jet the first time. And unlike Many fourth gen fighters, there is no backseat F-35 version. There is no D model, as the F-16 would call it, that right. can bail you out. You need to know those procedures quite well, uh, and they they need to have confidence in you. So you've got to take a a check ride in the sim before you even strap on the jet. Uh, so uh, thrilling experience overall. Definitely some work on the front end. The good thing though is with all the systems in the F-35. Many of those systems are really about how do you effectively employ the jet in combat. And so you don't necessarily need it to make that first takeoff. It's like, we'll introduce that system into your cross-check later. Let's start with the ones you really need to fly and to do just the basics. Uh, And then we'll add those in kind of piecemeal. So you're not trying to learn everything in the air for the first time. And that's an effective training method. Yeah, I, I think that's that's the right way to go. Um, uh, building blocks, so to speak. Um, so let's talk about those building blocks because you have this very deep knowledge of employing an F-16 as a weapon system. And now how do you train in an F-35? What are the differences? Right. So you really have to draw the line between the capabilities and where you're trying to get with the tactics or what is the intent of how you employ the machine. So in other words, the mission that you're looking to take on and what unique features do you get with an F-35 versus an F-16? And really the F-35 was built as a suppression of enemy air defenses platform. 
Mm-hmm. So how do we take a integrated air defense picture or an IADS for our adversary and be able to target that so that we can bring in other assets with us and basically bring the combat power to bear? How do we suppress or destroy those threats in order to do that? So that's where you start is, okay, what is the mission that we're trying to actually get to? Of course, it's a multi-role fighter though, so it can do other things as well. But that's kind of the the ultimate of of where we want to get to with the F-35. And then you look at, okay, what are the unique features? And so you've got the stealth and the sensor fusion that I talked about, but you also have to look at, okay, what are the limitations of the aircraft? We haven't really talked too much about those. So one of the biggest limitations that you've got is the amount of weapons that you can carry is very limited when you're in a stealth mode or a stealth configuration, it means everything needs to be carried internally. Right. That's going to really limit the number of weapons that you can bring, especially when you start getting into the bombs, like missiles, you might be able to get a few more in there, but when you start getting into the bombs, you're really pretty limited because the bigger you have to make that aircraft to keep the bombs inside, the less aerodynamic it will be. And then there's this trade-off. Right. Uh, so really the biggest difference in training is you're trying to get to the point where the F-35 is not just able to suppress uh, the threats. They're able to integrate with the other platforms that you're on that mission with to optimize their ability to succeed, not just by suppressing the threat, but also by giving some of the situational awareness that is in your integrated displays to the others, whether that be targeting ability, whether that be threat point outs, because that suite is one, it's very good sensors overall. Two, it's very well integrated so that you are able to understand it very quickly. And now that's where you get to the analogy of the quarterback who is seeing the whole field and is either throwing the ball to somebody else for them to, you know, get the touchdown or they're calling a different play because they're able to see something that uh, the others in their vantage point can't necessarily see. And that's a very different training mentality. Yeah, for sure. And so within the F-35, I I believe that there is a a secure data link that can communicate between F-35s. So because you have that, that's a whole nother kind of training paradigm that you have to kind of wrap your head around because before in a legacy aircraft, you would have something like Link 16 or whatever, you'd be able to pass info. But I think now, and correct me where I'm wrong, uh, Press, but I think now this information is transmitted almost seamlessly. But like you said, it's a different way of employing the weapon system where you can be separated further and you know kind of have greater swath of, of territory that you're covering with less aircraft, which is kind of cool. Yeah, it's also uh, the ability with the secure comms and the passage of data is a sensor at a different angle or at a different perspective combined with a sensor from a different perspective are able to build a more accurate picture. Uh, And that secure comm is key to being able to exchange the data so that you're building a more complete picture for everyone to benefit from. Yeah, really interesting. And when I think about air combat maneuvering, because as you mentioned, the F-35 multi-role 
but any air combat maneuvering um i think back of the original top gun is kind of topical because now top gun maverick is out but you look at some of the the ways that pilots like yourself would go through training and debrief a training scenario or mission um you would have something like air combat maneuvering instrumentation where you could actually see what happens. But in fourth gen aircraft, that's with a pod. And I think it, with the F-35, it's internal, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's right. So if you just look at the instrumentation that's going to be shared with anyone outside of your F-35, uh, four ship, eight ship, whatever you're employing with, uh, to get that precise position, there's a couple of considerations. One is you still want that to be secure. And so the ACMI on the F-35 is unique in that from the start, it was required to be an encrypted ACMI. Mm. So that we can uh, keep the, the tactics of exactly how we're operating and against who in a as secure a way as possible. And then, like you said, it's a different problem because I can't hang a pod there externally. I've got to carry it inside. And so it's got to get integrated into the rest of the airframe. And for the F-35, the internal subsystem is just called the P-5 internal subsystem. So it's doing many of the same processes as what you have in a pod that traditionally hangs out on the wing. Mm -hmm. The pod on the wing is getting air-cooled, whereas a pod internal needs to get cooled in a different way. And so it's actually integrated into the liquid cooling of the jet itself. Uh, and that's called PAO, which is just a, a type of liquid that's able to uh, you know, bring down the heat because anytime you've got electric components doing their, doing their business, it's, it's going to bring down the heat. So the importance of that is having that P5 internal is that integration training, the things I talked about where you have a responsibility with better awareness of the battle space to share that to the other players. Um, even an F-35 with all its great sensors isn't going to have perfect battle space awareness. And so that ACMI allows you to have the tracking either during live mission execution or in post-flight debrief through recording devices that are on a pod itself in the fourth gen to bring, the, bring all that information into a debrief and create what we call truth data. And so that's where ACMI is really optimized is you're able to create the truth data, just like you talked about with uh, Top Gun and what we saw on Top Gun Maverick, the things they were watching, I think of that as bringing truth data back so that we know exactly what happened and we know what mistakes were made and we can start to go through our process to turn those into lessons so that we do better the next time. And that is a fundamental part of how we train to be an effective force. You have to have a process that you can get to the lessons. So ACMI is a great component of that process. Yeah. And, you know, you just triggered something in me. And, and that is that I've always thought about ACMI from a training perspective, but you can also utilize it now because it's embedded into the aircraft from an operational training perspective as well. Right. So it's a system that gives you an ability to actually tie in to the aircraft system itself and be able to not just record position, but record what were you doing with uh, sensors or, or what were you doing with weapons employment and at what time. And if you use that and combine it with the truth data of where everyone is through high fidelity 
time space position information now you get a much more complete picture of what actually happened you can also do that post mission because all of that is time synced and you you're recording what your sensors were doing and so you can do that post mission if you can do it real time and use your acmi system or or some way to communicate that between all the players it allows you to create a more realistic training environment. And so that is, is kind of the next step of ACMI and the evolution of, of where we're trying to go. If you take that another step further, now you can go, well, does it have to necessarily be something that's air breathing to contribute to that picture? Uh, and the answer is no, as long as the data is the same, and you can pass that in real time through some means, there's no reason you can't take a simulator and actually have that simulator give some position that is obviously beyond visual range. Otherwise, the game's up. If you're, mm -hmm. if you're supposed to be within a mile and he's not really there, that's not very realistic training. Right. But most of the training we do is beyond visual range. That's the focus of, of our training. So mm -hmm. now you can tie in a simulator, which has got an operator in the loop, either on the adversary side or on the friendly side, and you can start to build a more complete force, which is the way that we need to train against a, a near peer adversary. You can also have computer generated forces and put that into the same language as the pod is speaking. And now you can eventually get to the point where the aircraft doesn't know if that is actually an airplane. Is that, a fake airplane that's actually a simulator, or is that a computer-generated force that is neither of those? And if we can trick the aircraft enough to trick the pilot, and the pilot doesn't know, then the pilot has to treat each of those things as though, worst case, that's a real aircraft in training. They're looking to you know, score a kill uh, in this training scenario. Uh, which is going to mean that I'm not going to do so well on this ride or, you know, whatever. It, right. they, they can't easily look at it and go, that's not a real thing. Right. Take that another step further through that same environment. You can take the adversary aircraft, for example, if you could replace what the aircraft really looks like uh, with a guised entity, like call that a, different aircraft. So for example, if your adversary is an F-16, but you, you want to fight against something else like a, a Su-27, uh, for example, you could, through the ACMI system that is connected to the aircraft bus or the operational flight program, you could make the aircraft show everything to the pilot as though that aircraft is something different. And you can make that be true for not just what it looks like on, the, say, the IR display. You can put a computer-generated IR display so it looks just like the real thing. You mm -hmm. could also put it on the radar that way. You could also make that adversary's weapons and sensors actually emulate the weapons and sensors that you would really want to train against. And that's something that has been a real limitation from when I trained throughout my days in the F-16 and even in the F-35 is we would train against, for example, in the air domain, an adversary that was just what they were. So they couldn't necessarily pretend to be something else. You knew what they were. So you would have to, in your mind, try to tell yourself, 
I'm pretending like this is a C-27 today. When you know very well you're flying against maybe a third-gen uh, aircraft. Right. And so you need to do a lot of mental gymnastics, and there's a lot of cognitive dissonance um, as to what your sight picture on your mind is. When you know when you were getting ready to take off, you were sitting next to, say, a Mirage F-1, and now I'm supposed to pretend like it's an advanced fighter of some kind. That's a tough leap to make. Yeah, especially when you know what that adversary actually is, like an F-4, right? Yeah, it really is interesting because the Air Force used to do a lot of internal Air Force-generated adversaries, and now it seems to be a lot of contracted adversaries. But the contractors are not able to provide you with a fifth-gen adversary, right? Like, I mean, and so it's got to be a huge problem set. And I think that's where synthetic inject to live really helps right because if you can insert into like f-35 training a synthetic su-27 that will act like an su-27 what have you if you've got that if you've got a ground-based simulator that's incorporated into this picture um man the training value there is just grows in leaps and bounds i i, I suspect it sure does it also allows you to get around another big problem that we have we talked about you can spread out your forces more because right. of that ability with the uh, with the sensor fusion to see a more complete picture. Mm-hmm. Well, to train to that, you have to have airspace that's appropriate to it. Right. Airspace is heavily contested between airlines want to use training airspace, military aviation wants to use the training airspace. Those airspaces have not gotten any bigger since I started my career. It's gone the other way. They've gotten smaller. So it's very difficult to envision a way that we we would have adequate airspace to give a really complete picture against a high-end adversary. Mm-hmm. You need to have an airspace to be able to train like you fight, and there are no real airspaces that are built for fifth gen. What's great about this concept of bringing the synthetic inject to live in a blended training environment to take those players who don't need airspace i.e. any simulator or constructive force and fly their profiles outside of the airspace, you can build a much more complete training picture than what we currently can, where the only thing you have to train against is actual live assets, and they have to be within the confines of the borders. And that becomes more of a problem for those who try to fly and train in congested areas. So that SIDL or blended training environment is a pretty big solution that issue as well. And yeah. then the other big thing is the limitation of how many adversaries can you actually get airborne if they have to be actual airplanes. Right. Because the F-35 and the F-22 can do so much more with their sensors, you can't get the same challenge with the same number of adversaries as I could in my F-16. In my mech scan radar F-16, you give me two to four adversaries against my two ship, that's a pretty challenging problem. Mm-hmm. And CF-35, maybe not so much. So we've got to do something to supplement that and to make the problem a little bit more realistic for one, but also a little bit more difficult and challenging for the pilots to handle. Right. Uh, that's interesting. And, you know, it, it occurs to me, as you, as you mentioned about airspace limitations and constraints, 
you're talking from a U.S. Air Force perspective where, you know, the United States is a large country and yeah. you were even saying that the, the training areas have become smaller over your career. I'm now thinking about all these F-35 operators around the world, like in Europe, where the countries are way smaller. That's exactly right. Yeah. So there's a couple, there's a couple challenges there. Obviously the airspace is what it is in Europe. It's more difficult than it is in the States as a general statement. Um, however, we also know that we need a lot more integration training in the European F-35 user community recognizes that. So I think there's been a, a push and a better job of how do we share the, that airspace and it's still a pretty new platform, but I could envision this going where combination of airspaces and sharing of airspace, we get a little bit more creative on that. And we do more training as a, uh, as a coalition or, or a, an allied force, for example, for NATO forces, where you get a lot more training together because you just can't parcel it out and get what you need out of the training scenarios. So you will see a lot more large force exercise participation from different countries that we may not have had before. And those countries in Europe are very aware that they need the space to be able to fly. And that's a limitation. Mm -hmm. And that's why a lot of those countries are very interested in, in getting to an LVC solution as well. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. And so how do we get to that solution? That is a great question. So um, LVC is not, any, there's no one platform, there's no one widget, there's no golden BB that we can buy that becomes LVC. Uh, what it really is, is a way to integrate the technologies that exist in a coherent way that brings environments together. And the way we get there is through investment as an overall force into different capabilities that are each distinct, but every one of them is necessary. And there's no company that can really solve that on their own. So what do I mean by that? We've known we need an LBC for a long time. This is not a new aspiration for the US Air Force or, or any other Air Forces. We've known the airspace limitations, the adversary limitations, we're going to need to go to something synthetic. And so one of the steps that's already been taken is we took the simulators, which are built by different OEMs or, or different uh, major manufacturers. Mm -hmm. And we've made a requirement that they produce something that is in the same language. And we've been able to connect those simulators together through something that the Air Force calls the DMON, Distributed Mission Operations Network. So that is some ground that's already been covered. And you can piggyback on a lot of the concepts that are used there to go, well, if we can do that for simulators and we can put it into the same language, which is a language called DIS in the Air Force, uh, then what if we could put the things that are happening in the air into that same language as well and get them into a common format? So that's one of the key concepts is we have standards and protocols that allow us to make the information be in whatever that format is, whether it's DIS, which is kind of a, a, a one that's been around for a while, or HLA, high-level architecture, is just another standard or format. 
you've got to get everybody on board to say everything that you put out there for this blended training environment has got to be in that same uh, language, if you will. Mm -hmm. From an air perspective, ACMI is a, is a place where we can do some of that and we can make ACMI pods, currently the P5 pod, uh, we can actually put that into that common uh, language in, in a common format and be able to integrate the data. And we know that because we've done it. We've done it with uh, like one of Cubic's products is called Spear, which mm -hmm. is simplified planning, execution, analysis, and reconstruction. And uh, Spear is a common data model whereby you can take what's in the sim, you can take what's in the air, you can put it in the same language. And that's the magic of Spear is, is it helps to put that all in the same language and integrate it so that you can now make that training look the same or make that position, uh, make those weapons models be written in the same language. That's standard uh, protocols. The next thing is you've got to have a way, if you want to do this for live training, so now we're talking about CIDL LVC and not just debrief mm -hmm. uh, and data management post-mission, but if you want to bring that into the live training arena as well, you've got to have a way to get it from the ground into the air. So how are you going to make that data travel through the air and do so in a way that's efficient enough that it's not messing with all the other things that are in the RF or radio frequency spectrum. So things right. like cell phones are in the radio frequency spectrum. Right. Uh, things like the airwaves, the, the networks, satellite TV, et cetera. All that stuff exists in the radio frequency spectrum. So you need a way to send lots of data. So we currently do ACMI like in a fairly small portion of that spectrum mm -hmm. because it's just passing positions of these aircraft. Now, sure. if we start to add, okay, how are we going to guise things? How are we going to send all this information from a simulator to make weapons and sensor models and all that be part of that training environment? It's got to be able to not go across a cable. It's got to go through the air. And so you've got to get a waveform that enables you to do that. So that's another thing that you will need to happen. And you'll need to have platforms that have an ability to capture that waveform, interpret it, and then send its own information through that same waveform. And so that's a lot of the work that uh, Cubic has done through uh, the Slate technology demonstrations. Uh, we're doing things like standards and protocols and waveforms and bringing that into a blended environment so that it can all be done, not just for post-flight, but also in the live environment. And that's uh, one of the key challenges is how do you gap the lines and get it off into the air? And then the next thing you need is you need to have a, a way to process that information. And where does that sit? That's a very key question. So you, where are your processors going to sit? You've got some options. You can put it inside the aircraft itself mm -hmm. and the mission computer of the aircraft itself or you can make it a part of the training system, such as the ACMI pod, where the processor is not in the aircraft. Because if the processor is in the aircraft, there's a couple of challenges. One is the update cycle of aircraft mission computers is not very fast. Meaning, right. how often do we change what that mission computer can do? It's not very often. Right. Whereas a pod, I can just take the pod off the aircraft and I can do something to it to reprogram the processing module. The other thing is 
as we talk about this, you can imagine if you have injects of synthetics into a live cockpit display, well, if that's all inherent to the aircraft itself, you've got a bit of a vulnerability because the last thing you want is, you know, you're, you're trying to do a combat mission and all of a sudden things are popping up and you don't know what's real and what's not. Right. So you need to have a firewall to be able to break that off. Yes. So if you do it through the ACMI system, you can take care of some of that firewalling because you can say, hey, I'm going to take this training system out of the aircraft altogether for when I go to fly the combat missions. It's just for training. And so you don't have that guising happening, you know, that vulnerability that, oh, what if somebody got a hold of it and, and, and guised it when I was actually trying to fight for real? That'd be a pretty disastrous consequences. Definitely. So there, there are a lot of things that have to happen and it's a pretty complex problem. Yep. And that's why we've been wanting it for 15 years and we don't necessarily have that full picture yet. One of the things that really surprised and impressed me when I was looking at Cubic, when I was looking to make my transition from my Air Force career to my next career, um, a lot of progress has been made that a lot of warfighters don't know about. And that slate demonstrations, that's the secure uh, LVC advanced training environment demonstrations really showcase this is what we can do when we do all the things and we call them the six capability spheres, standards and protocols, processing modules, uh, the ability to propagate that through the RF spectrum. And then there's some other ones too. We can go on for hours about it, but uh, that stuff has actually been proven successful and it was actually done in those demonstrations. So that really got my attention and, and was very impressed with what has already been done. But as you can tell with all the different components of that ecosystem that you have to build, that takes a lot of coordinated effort amongst a lot of disparate players to right. include those who manufacture the aircraft, those who manufacture the SIM, uh, those who run the networks, all of that has to be coordinated. And that's a very tough problem, but one that uh, some companies have actually gotten out in front of and and at least figured the technical solution. Uh, and now it's a matter of coordinating the investment to make sure that we can apply it across the board because you really need all your warfighters to be going in that same direction to make it as we truly train like you fight. You need to have that symbiosis between the different players in that environment. Yeah, because modern combat is multi-domain, right? It's not just one Absolutely. domain. So you've got to have everybody kind of on the same page. And I suspect that's a, that is a complex, daunting problem that hopefully companies like Cubic are kind of making strides in. That's, a, that's exactly right. It's a daunting problem, uh, and it doesn't lend itself well to a 15-second elevator speech on how do we get there. Right. So if you ask how do you get there, you can really simplify it, but then it, it doesn't have any real rigor to it. It's a complex discussion. And so you need some time to really look at the problem holistically. And uh, it's frankly not the way our current acquisition processes in any country that I know of are set up to be able to take all these different things and try to apply them universally mm -hmm. across not just and now I was just talking the air breathers. Right. Now you start talking about the multi-domain. And so there really needs to be a unity of effort there. And that's a challenge that the uh, U.S. Department of Defense has struggled with that 
I'd say NATO struggles with like how do we get this so that we can train with all the players in a realistic environment. Yeah, you know, as a as an aerospace and defense journalist um, in my day job, I I encounter this issue often. And you know, you were in the Air Force, and and it, you know, you certainly encountered it. But I find that each branch within, like, let's say, the US DoD has their own synthetic environment language. And it's like in my mind, I'm like, hasn't the penny dropped? Where there's got to be some kind of standardization across DoD. You know, yeah. to kind of have everything talk to each other. Yeah. And the good news there, Jody, is those efforts are are actually taking place. And the advancements that have been made in the last three years to really understanding the problem, because there's a lot of nuance to it and there's a lot of technical challenge. Uh, but those advancements are being made pretty rapidly. And there is organization through the Office of the Secretary of Defense uh, that personnel and ready, readiness that actually has the lead for that. And, and they're actually uh, trying to integrate those standards amongst the services. So really it's a matter of educating everyone that it is within the possible. It's mm -hmm. actually been done and done very successfully. Most warfighters don't know that still. So it's right. spreading that word. And then it's describing and making sure there is a intellectual rigor to the solutions that are offered because there aren't a whole lot of people who understand the entire problem set and you need that full problem set understanding to get to the right solution. And so without that understanding, it's easy to go invest in something that doesn't get you all the way. It's like uh, PK Averna will tell you who's one of the smartest people on this subject that I've ever met. It's like the fire triangle. To have fire, you need to have all components of the fire triangle. You need to have the fuel, you need to have the oxygen, you need to have the spark. If you're missing any one of those, you're not getting fire. <laughs> right. Much the same with the capability spheres of what you have for CITL LVC. You have to have all of those components, and I didn't describe all of them, but there's six major things that you need. And if you're missing any one of them, you can't complete that circle. And so it, it's an educating process to make sure that decision makers understand not just what those components are, but how to effectively and affordably get to them so it's realistic. Yeah, you know, one of the things where I feel very thankful and blessed of for this for this podcast is that there's a lot of senior leaders that listen to it across different branches uh, of the military and across different militaries. So I hope, you know, when they hear a discussion like this, they really start to appreciate, I think they appreciate how complex it is, but I hope that they also take that appreciation and try to move the needle to getting to this common standard and this common understanding that it is complex, but we have to move there because if we don't, you're going to be left behind. That's exactly right. What I have seen is there's a lot of recognition of the imperative to upgrade our training system. Any senior leader I talk to almost without fail understands that we can't just keep doing what we're doing. Now there are different ideas for what's the best way into the future, but at least that is recognized that we have to change the way we're training because it's not realistic enough. Now, I think it's probably the best training in the world, but 
it needs to go another level to make it even more realistic given the, the weight of the consequences of failing in this mission. So we got to make sure that we have unity of effort. Yeah. And, you know, John, I think the other aspect is there's talking the talk and there's walking the walk. And mm -hmm. what I mean by that is the U.S. Department of Defense, you know, the various different branches all talk about joint domain training and multi-domain training. We talk about it, but if we can't train that way, then you can talk about it all you want, but it gets back to training like you fight. Yep. If we can't train like we're talking, then then what are we doing? Right. And it is a complex problem, but we're closer to the solution than I think most think or that many people think. If we're willing to dedicate ourselves to the effort and to really understanding the problem, and what I mean by that is we have to go deep. We got to we got to go bold, if you will. Like <laughs> we've got to go deep into our understanding to understand you can't just throw any waveform at this problem. It's got to be a very uh, specifically oriented waveform because this is not like any other capability we're trying to get to. For example, you if you have a, a test waveform, you need the test waveform to be able to, to push a lot of data, but it's it's at a fairly consistent size. In LVC, where everything is treated as a different entity, mm -hmm. it's very much a burst of information that's coming all of a sudden. The way waveforms generally work is you've got uh, most waveforms that are out there today are deconflicted by time, where the passer of information and the receiver, from a technical standpoint, are talking and listening at designated times. That that takes up a lot of bandwidth. Right. So you've got to have an ability to actually do something different because if you try to do that with a whole burst of information, you just created all kinds of spectrum conflict that you cannot have. So right. there's actually new techniques and ways to do this in a way that's uh, much more efficient and stays within the band. And so conversations like that, that's the level of depth that our leaders need to be able to express and they need to know what is required to get us to this capability. And the answers are there, but it does take uh, effort to uh, make sure that we're educated on, on how to really get there and then be willing to expose whatever solutions are envisioned to all comers to challenge them. If our decisions uh, shy away from challenge, then we are doing ourselves a disservice. We have to be willing to put our technical way forward out there for the right people to be able to poke holes in it and see if we can find the reason it won't work so that we adjust vector to get to a way that will work. And, uh, and that's my hope for the warfighter is that uh, we collectively can do that on this challenging problem. Well, you know, that's, that's one of the things that, that I distinctly recall when I first met you, John, was that, um, you know, you were the wing commander of a training base. And even from our last podcast conversation, training was so important to you and training the warfighter and training the people that are coming after you. And, you know, you take it very seriously because it is serious business and, Absolutely. and you want it to be the best it can be. Well, I've seen it from my own perspective of, to be perfectly frank with you, based on the timing of when I got into the F-35, I knew as I went up to do some of the more complex missions that I was not nearly as trained for because 
this is newsflash, wing commanders don't get quite as much time uh, there in, in the uh, cockpit as, as the younger pilots do. Right. I saw it firsthand. My training was clearly not as good as theirs. Hmm. And so we had the exact same aircraft, but they were able to do things with that aircraft that I just couldn't. Huh. I didn't have the training. Sure. Uh, take that to the next level. Our whole force needs to have the better we can make that training, the more realistic, the more likely that we are going to be to be successful. And uh, and I thought actually Top Gun did a really good job of stressing the point with the mission that they went on. And yes, there were plenty of fictitious uh, aspects to it, but for sure, it is absolutely true what they said in the movie. It's not the the uh, power of the machine. It's the quality of the man or woman in the box, meaning right. the person in the cockpit that right. makes all the difference. And with the the gap in capability closing between, uh, you know, some of the Western powers and our potential adversaries, that training is going to be the difference between the ability to win, the ability to lose, and more importantly, the ability to deter. So we've got to get there. Right. Right. Well, uh John, I think that is a perfect spot to leave this conversation because you're right. We have to get this right. And I find it fascinating. I think, um, you know, I'm heartened to hear that we're closer uh, as you're as you're seeing from your perch than we have been in, in years past. So that's that's a really good news. I would say we're a matter with the right decisions. We're a matter of years away, not decades away. I wouldn't have been able to say that. 10 years ago. So uh, I'm heartened by that as well. Uh, we just need to have unity of effort. And I, I think we'll get there. And no, no one service, no one company, no one organization can solve the problem. It it's, takes the collective effort. And uh, I'm going to continue to dedicate myself to trying to make sure that uh, I help to educate those who haven't looked at this problem quite as deeply as to what what are the things that have to happen to get us to the most realistic training environment we can, because it is it is extremely important. Well, you know, maybe that's another conversation that we could have. Um, but perhaps with you and some of your colleagues together, we could discuss some of the problem sets and, and what needs to be done to move that needle. Sounds awesome. great. Awesome. Well, hey, uh, U.S. Air Force Colonel retired John Wheeler. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me on Go Bold. This has been a lot of fun and it's been enlightening um, because having your perspective is invaluable. So I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it too, Jody, and uh, look forward to talking to you more. Thank you, John. Thank you. You take good care of yourself and look forward to our next chat. Hey folks, we hope you enjoyed this episode. We have a contest for you. The fifth person to email us and correctly tell us what SPEAR stands for will win a embroidered F-35 remove-before-flight keychain. You can submit your answer to us at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. Good luck to everyone. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner. <laughs>